that, then we must certainly believe that you are not reliant on real estate agents and construction managers for your church to thrive. In fact, there's a very real sense that you don't need us. You are perfect, you are complete, you are holy, you are all-powerful. This is, in fact, as much as it feels like it right now, this is, in fact, not about us at all. This is about who you are and what you desire to do in this body, in this community, in this state, in our country, and in this world for it all belongs to you. And so I pray this morning that we might be able to quiet our hearts and minds and that we might be able to simply hear your voice, that we might know the truth and that we might do it. By your Holy Spirit, challenge us, we pray this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. It's kind of interesting how God does all those things, if you believe it. How long ago did you guys pick out those songs for today? (laughs) Those last two songs, uh, you know, at least a month ago, I'm sure, uh, before we had any idea. Of course, God always knows. Well, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews the last few weeks, if you've been with us been thinking about this passage that we're going to look at this morning from Hebrews chapter 7, and I was thinking about the concept or the, the idea of compatibility. Compatibility is what most people are looking for, if we really think about it. We want to live our lives among people that we get along with, right? We want to live our lives with people that we mesh with that share our interests and that share our likes and our dislikes. One indication of this, interestingly, I think, is the ascendance of online dating. 336 million people in the world, $5.6 billion annually through the business of online dating. In fact, one in five internet users are using online dating apps around the world. And the reason is simply this. They're looking for someone compatible, looking for someone to live life with and and filling out profiles. This is what I like and this is what I don't. This is what I do and this is what I don't do. But the question, of course, is... Can an algorithm really make a match? You see, there's something that we realize when it comes to dating, when it comes to love, when it comes to marriage, but really when it comes to any relationship, and that is this. In many ways, we're looking for someone who is different than us. 
We're not just looking for someone who is like us. We're often looking for someone different than us. Yes, there are some aspects of our lives when we desire similarities, certainly in, in spiritual beliefs and philosophies. And, and it would be nice to have someone to live life with or people to live around us that, that like the same music that we do or the same movies or the same football team. But in other ways, we're looking for people who are the opposite of us. We're looking for people who are strong in areas that we are weak, who have talents and abilities in areas where we have no idea what we're doing. We've been looking here for the last two weeks at Hebrews 7 because it gives us an extremely thorough understanding of the work of Jesus Christ as our high priest. A couple of weeks ago, Tim introduced us to a guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a character from the book of Genesis, you will recall, who was a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. He was a picture of Christ in his excellency, in the fact that he was both a king and a priest, which was not common in those days, in the fact that his reign had no beginning or no end. Now last week, if you were here, we, we continued Hebrews chapter 7 and we saw that we have in this day and age as Christ followers a better hope because we have a better covenant, a new agreement with Jesus in terms of our relationship with God. And because of his indestructible life, remember we saw that phrase, because of his indestructible life, we have hope and he saves us entirely and completely. And we learn that he ever lives to intercede for us. He is praying for us. If you're a Christ follower, my friend, today, right now, this very moment, Jesus Christ is praying for you. Right now. And now as we get to the end of Hebrews 7, we're reaching the pinnacle or the crescendo, the summary of everything that we have learned about this topic. And as we read these last three verses of Hebrews 7 this morning, we're going to see the writer is going to say, isn't it fitting that we have Jesus? He is perfect for us. It's not just that Jesus is admirable, and he certainly is. It's not just that Jesus is worthy, and he certainly is. But Jesus Christ is everything that we need. He is everything that we need. He is absolutely, perfectly suited to save us and keep us and strengthen us. So let's see what God has to say in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. If you have your Bible, turn with me there if you haven't already. If not, the verses will be on the screen. Hebrews 7, 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I want you to notice, first of all, that word fitting. It's fitting that we would have Jesus. The word fitting there literally means it is proper, it is suitable that we have Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying what we we're just talking about, that Jesus Christ is perfect for us. And I want you to notice why. 
See how Jesus is described for us in this verse. Do you see the verses, the words that are used to describe Jesus? Look at them again on the screen or in your Bible. What does it say about Jesus? It says he is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separate from sinners. Jesus Christ is perfect for us. He is the exact high priest that we need because he is everything that we are not. Look at that list. Does that describe you? No. No, it doesn't. It doesn't describe me either. He's perfect for us because he is everything that we are not. He's, he's holy and innocent. We are certainly not that. He is separate from sinners. In other words, separate from their sin. And I want you to notice what he says here. He is exalted above the heavens. Now you know, probably most of you, maybe not everyone, but most of you know a little bit of the story of Jesus. And you know what happened, right? You know that Jesus Christ is God. John chapter 1 tells us that very clearly. Hebrews chapter 1 that we looked at several weeks ago tells us that very clearly. Jesus Christ is God. And yet he willingly chose to leave heaven, to leave his place at the right hand of the Father, and to come to earth. And Philippians chapter 2 describes it for us this way. It says he humbled himself. Now let me ask you this. Do you think it would take some humility to go from the king over the universe to be a tiny little helpless baby born in a barn? Would that require some humility? Absolutely. I mean, we walk into a hotel room and see one hair on the bed and we're like, that's it, I'm out of here, can't do it. I deserve cleanliness, right? Jesus, John 1 tells us Jesus created the world. And then he chose to humble himself and come to this earth. And then after he lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death, and rose powerfully from the grave, he ascended back into heaven to where? To the right hand of the Father. He is now sitting once again in his place of authority over all this world. He is perfect for us because he is everything that we are not, and he is everywhere that we are not. When my phone rang at 11.25 on Thursday morning and Mike told me that we were out of here, I had no idea. I was living my life without a care in the world. <laughs> because I'm down here. I'm walking around. I can't see everything that's happening. I see what's right in front of me and that's it. But Jesus Christ seated in the heavens in the place of authority, and he sees everything. He's suitable for us because everything is under his control. Remember last week we said that he has saved us to the uttermost. There is no enemy that can take us back. We are secure. What an incredible blessing that is to have been rescued. And I shared with you last week 1 John 2, 1. 
When John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you would not sin. But if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He advocates for us continually when we sin. And he asks the Father for forgiveness on our behalf. But of course, what I want you to notice this morning is that it's even more than that. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest for us, not just because he begs for forgiveness for us when we sin, but because he is able to give us the power and the strength and the grace to, are you ready for this? Not sin in the first place. Yes, he is certainly there to intercede for us when we need it, when we fall. But he makes his strength available to us so that we might avoid sin, so that we might resist temptation. I want to show you a couple of verses and other passages this morning. In 1 John, or sorry, 1 Corinthians, I'm still in 1 John in one part of my brain. The other part's still going this way. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this. Some of you may recognize this verse. You may be familiar with it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation or he with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you write in your Bibles and you have not marked that verse, please mark it, circle it, highlight it, put arrows and stars pointing to it. It's so important because it dispels so many lies about sin and temptation. The first lie it dispels is that Every temptation is common. You're not the only one. How many times when you face temptation have you rationalized it this way? Well, nobody else really knows how I feel. Nobody else knows what I'm going through. Nobody else understands or has ever had to deal with any of these things. I'm unique. It's just me. Not according to the Apostle Paul. He says, you've never faced a temptation that millions before you have not faced. Okay? Satan likes to tell us that to give us an excuse. Also, I want you to notice, not only is that lie dispelled, but this lie is dispelled as well. God will not allow a temptation that you cannot resist. I just, I had no choice. That temptation came, that situation happened, it popped up, boom, it was right there. Whew. I, I, nothing I could do. That's a lie. That's a lie. God doesn't allow us to be tempted with an un surmountable situation. It says here that he always provides the way of escape. There's always another option. I want you to be thinking about that. Today, as we leave here in a little while and you go out into your life and you live life in the world like the rest of us and you face temptation, the next time you are tempted, I want you to stop for a moment and think, there's another option. 
It's another choice. There's always a choice. Sin is always a choice. As our high priest, Christ gives us the strength that we need. I want to read you a couple of verses from Romans chapter 5. In verse 18, this all has to do with Christ as our high priest and what he does for us. I want you to notice this. Romans 5.18, we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. Someday we'll do Romans and we'll go through the whole thing. But it's a long conversation and we don't have time for it this morning. But Romans 5.18, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass or one sin led to condemnation for all men, so that one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's what we've been talking about in Hebrews. That's what we've been talking about. We're all sinners. We need a Savior. There needs to be a sacrifice. That one man's sin, he's referring all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned, brought sin into the world, and we are all sinners. By one man's righteousness, he is talking about Jesus Christ. Now let's go on to verse 20. I want you to see something very important here. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, when the, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, God gave them the law. Now the law exposed their sin. It showed them how sinful they were. God said, you need to do this, 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 this. And they looked at that list and they went, yikes. We're sinners. That was the purpose of the law. But I want you to see something very important here. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Wow. Wow. More sin, more grace. Whew, we need it, don't we? That's a good thing, right? How thankful we are for it. Look at verse 21. So that, because of the grace which abounded when sin increased, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is he saying? He's saying simply this. Follow me now. He's saying, sin is not the king anymore. Sin is not reigning anymore. Before there was sin, and there seemed like there was no choice but to sin. We get the law. Man, we're sinners. Look at all this. We can see all the ways that we have fallen short. But sin isn't the king anymore. Jesus is the king. Grace is the king, not sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that's good news. That's really good news. If you think it's good news, feel free to notify your face. <laughs> Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul writes this verse, and if you've ever read Romans, some of you are here and you've read Romans before, and you've read Romans 6 before, and you've read Romans 6 1, you're like, yeah, Paul totally knew us, didn't he? Did you catch what he said here? 
Remember what I said a minute ago? Sin everywhere. So what does Jesus do? He comes and he offers grace. Oh, good, there's a lot of sin, but there's more grace. You knew it, right? You knew some smart aleck at the back of the room was going to say, well, hey, if more sin means more grace, then let's sin it up, baby. Right? That's what Paul is saying. Now, maybe I'm being a little more colloquial in 2023 than Paul was 2,000 years ago, but that's exactly what he's saying, right? If more sin means more grace, then why do we worry about sin? There's plenty of grace available. But should we say that? Should we do that? Is that the way that we should live? Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, humbles himself and lives on this vile, rotten, filthy earth and allows himself to be nailed to a cross and buried in a grave and rises again to save us, and we say, yeah, what the heck? There's lots of grace. We'll do whatever we want. Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think that's what he saved us for? Of course not. It's ridiculous. We've been saved out of that life. And Christ works in us so that we might progress in holiness. Let me read you two more verses from Romans there at the very end of chapter 6. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, instead of slaves of sin, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. In verse 23, which you probably many of you recognize, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. My friends, listen to me. The eternal life that we have in Christ is not just about future duration. It's about present holiness. Eternal life is not just about quantity. This life that Christ gives us, there is a qualitative aspect of it. Jesus not only saves us and keeps us and loves us and protects us, but he is fully invested in changing us into devoted disciples, people after his own heart, people, in fact, Romans chapter 8 tells us, people resembling him. That's the point. Jesus Christ is 
a suitable high priest. It is fitting for us that we have him. Yes, because he saves us. Yes, because we don't have to look forward to a destiny of eternity in hell, but rather eternity in the presence of God. But it's so much more than that. It's more than just eternity in the presence of God. It is also for now. That he might strengthen us and give us grace to avoid temptation and to progress in our holiness. Let's keep reading about him in verse 27 of Hebrews 7. He has no need, speaking of Christ, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. So he is contrasted again. We looked at this a bit last week also, and Tim did the week before that. He contrasts them with the priests of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, when sacrifices were being offered daily. Now, I can't sum up 5,000 years of Jewish history in three minutes, but I'm going to try. Back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve saw death for the first time. They were living in a sinless place until they sinned. And when they sinned, there's a little line in there that sometimes gets skipped over. But it said that God made, took skins and made clothing for them. Now the word for skins there literally means animal hide or leather is the word. And so what happened? God killed some animals, and made clothing for them. They were ashamed. They felt guilt and shame because of their sin. They realized that they were naked, and so God clothed them. What were they learning? They were learning that sin led to death and that there needed to be a sacrifice. In chapter 3 of Genesis, God promises that a deliverer would one day come. And that he would come from their line, from Adam and Eve's line. Now, they must have been very confused by that. I'm sure they didn't understand much of what was happening. But they trusted God. It became a little bit clearer in the time of Moses. The Israelites were in the land of Egypt and they were slaves. And they cried out to God, please save us. Please deliver us. And God heard their cry, and so he raised up Moses, and Moses went to Pharaoh, and through a whole series of circumstances, if you read there in Exodus 4, 5, 6, in that area, you will see the ten plagues that God sent on Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. The last plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn, and it was that every firstborn thing in Egypt would die, cattle, people, everything. But for the Israelites, he gave them an option. He said, if you will take a lamb, and if you will kill that lamb, and if you will take the blood and put it on the doorposts of your house, and you will take the meat of that lamb, and you will roast it and feed it to your family on this night, then I will pass over your house, and I will spare your eldest child. And that's what he did. I'm sure they didn't understand all of that, but they were starting to get a clearer picture that there must be a sacrifice in order for there to be deliverance. Later, God was grieved because of Israel's sin in the wilderness, and Moses offered himself, Take me, Lord, save your people, but take me. God refused. 
Moses could not atone for anyone else's sin because he would need to atone for his own. He was a sinner himself. Then later on in the book of Leviticus, God gave the Israelites the law, a system where the priests, the Levites, would help people to become right with God by offering sacrifices for them. They couldn't help them overcome temptation and sin, but they could offer the sacrifices. And even those sacrifices only covered sin temporarily. And so there were daily sacrifices and there were weekly sacrifices and there were yearly sacrifices. There were burnt offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, remembrance offerings. They offered bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons and grain and oil and wine. There were constant fires of sacrifice. The blood was constantly flowing as the priests sought to keep the people in good standing before God by offering these sacrifices. But what did Jesus do? As our high priest that says he offered a sacrifice how many times? Once. Why only once? Because he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. He didn't have to pay for his own sins. He took care of our sin. And so he doesn't have to offer daily sacrifices because our debt has been paid. And the account is settled. Look at verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Those Old Testament priests, the Old Covenant priests, they they were weak. They couldn't do it. They couldn't accomplish what needed to be done. But Jesus, it says, notice here, was made perfect forever. Now that has become a controversial verse for some people because they look at it and they say, see there, that proves that Jesus is not God because it says he was made perfect. That means he wasn't perfect. Of course, we know that the Hebrews is not saying that. It's not saying that Jesus was anything other than morally perfect at any time. We just read it two verses ago, remember? Encourage me. Remember verse 26? What is he? How is he described? Holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. That's not what he's talking about here. That word has, in fact, nothing to do with moral perfection. The Greek word here is teleo, and it means to bring to completion or to reach the final stage. I want to show you what that means because the word teleo is the word from which we get our English word telescope. And I have here my favorite little pirate telescope. And the way that pirate telescopes work, if you're not familiar with this, if you haven't watched any pirate movies or anything, is that you extend them one section at a time. And as you extend them, everything gets a little bit clearer each time, and you can see just a little bit further, right? So you extend one section, and you can see a little bit, and then another section, and then finally to its fullest extent. And you can look out across the waves and see the enemy vessel and all the other things that pirates do. That's the word that is used here to describe Jesus Christ. He is the perfection. He is the completion of God's purpose. If you remember over in Hebrews chapter 5, Tim showed us this verse a few weeks ago. Hebrews 5, 9 says, And being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's the same phrase. He was made perfect. 
So how did this work? Remember, I just did the whole 5,000 years of Jewish history in three minutes. Well, now I'm going to do it in 80 seconds. Remember Adam and Eve? Sacrifices, shed blood. Okay. Don't really understand what's going on here, but we trust you, God. And then Israel, leaving Egypt, the Passover lamb, they put the blood on the door and their lives were spared. Okay, that seems a little bit clearer. We're understanding a little bit more. And then they get into the wilderness and God gives them the law and he sets up this whole system of sacrificial uh, system and priests and all of this stuff. All right. Then the prophets come. Isaiah comes and says, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, is the Lamb. Now, for those who are paying attention, they thought, hmm, okay. Now we're starting to see some connection between the Messiah and the Lamb. Then what happens about 500 years later? John the Baptist comes. And John the Baptist is with his disciples, and he is walking around, and he sees Jesus over there. Do you remember what he does there in John chapter 1? He says, wait, look. And he points at Jesus. Do you remember what he says? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's much clearer. And then a few months later, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Clearer still. Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying for all. Clearer still. Jesus rises powerfully from the dead. Clearer still that he is God, that he is the one. And Paul in Acts chapter 16 verse 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. How clear is that? Crystal. Crystal clear. Complete. Perfect. And how blessed we are to see it all so clearly. Can you imagine Adam and Eve? After however long they had lived in that garden free of guilt free of shame, and then all of a sudden, we're killing animals, we're wearing their skin, we're painting blood on the doorposts. What are we doing? We're going out back and getting a lamb and taking it to the tabernacle so the priest can kill it? What's happening? But how blessed we are to see Jesus, the perfect Savior, and the fulfillment of all God's purpose. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is your savior. You have so much to be thankful for today because Jesus Christ is everything you need. He's everything you need. He's absolutely perfectly suited to save you and to keep you and to make it possible for you to grow in holiness. And because of his position over all, he is perfectly able to handle everything that you face. Nothing surprises him. You need that. I need that. In fact, without Christ, you would never make it 
I would never make it. One more flashback, this time to Hebrews 4. Tim taught us these verses several weeks ago. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come to Jesus at any time. He is always on duty. He's always there. He's always listening. He's always ready to provide grace and wisdom and strength and help in temptation. Coming to the throne of grace to find help is not just to come there to find forgiveness after we have sinned. It's to come there before we have sinned and ask for his strength. And grace to grow and to be sanctified and to be more like him in our words and our thoughts and our actions. To progress in our holiness. Are you progressing in your holiness today? I'm sure that most of you are Christ followers and I'm thankful for that. Some of you may not be. Those of you who are, I'm very grateful for that. But are you progressing in your holiness? It's not just about being saved not just about trusting Christ there. I don't have to worry about hell anymore. Are you progressing in your holiness? You can. You can because of Jesus and his power. He is God and he is yours to walk with you. You might be tempted to base your salvation on your feelings and your failings. The only place to really trust, place your emphasis, place your beliefs is on the efficacy, the power of Jesus Christ. He's exactly who you need, provides everything that you need. So the question is, as we live our lives, What are the excuses that are keeping you from being who God has called you to be, who he's made you to be? Literally, we could ask ourselves, what more could Jesus do? Nothing. He's done everything. Here this morning and you want to talk a little more about that, maybe you don't have a relationship with Christ, or you do, but it's stuttering, come talk to me afterwards. I'll be right here to talk to you what more could Jesus do for you nothing my friends you have all that you need in Christ Father thank you for the gift of Jesus thank you for his grace that is greater than all of our sin his mercies that are new every morning you are truly faithful to us I pray that you will break through the walls of our hearts and open up our minds to understand what you have done for us in Christ that we might be your people, that we might not just be saved, but that we might be progressing in our holiness. We might be growing to resemble you more and more, a little bit more every day. Go out with us now, Lord, and give us the strength that only you can. Help us to be a light in this community. And once again, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. I hope you have a great week.